All right, I'm excited about today. Um, the bad news is we're moving right on to Module 6, Session 1. Um, the good news is I'm going to take my time in a couple of these uh, lectures. So uh, if you're still trying to get caught up, you have plenty of time to get caught up. Uh, this one we're going to take two weeks to do, at least, uh, just even on this first one. So today is Eschatology 1. Uh, I don't have... Uh, I don't have a title slide. Eschatology 1, we're going to start with views of eschatology and maybe get to premillennialism, but we'll probably just go through um, views of eschatology. So let's pray and then we'll get our Lord's Day started together. Our Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the chance to be here together. What a lovely day outside and, and it reminds us of your goodness, your common grace that you give to all mankind. And we're here also, Lord, more importantly, to celebrate the specific grace, the special grace that you give through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time here this morning as we begin to consider the events of the future, the things which you have so clearly told us will happen. And because of those things, Lord, we have great confidence in our current time because we know that you will return. We know that that Christ will reign on this earth and we have great um, hope because of that. I pray that you would help us to learn and to grow this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to take uh, a, a bit of time on this. First of all, it's one of my favorite subjects, and it, this is also one of, the, one of the premier topics that kind of sets us apart as dispensational, um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But because eschatology is so important to um, the Bible, I think that since the Bible spends one-third of its time on prophecy, that we ought to as well. Um, so we spend a lot of time on this. I'm also excited about this in particular because I've been in the middle of studying. Uh, I'm going to guess the very first part of February on Sunday nights. I'm going to start my preaching series. I'm just calling Millennium, and we're going to start looking at the at the millennial period. And uh, we're going to put a lot of upfront theology with that as well before we actually look at the millennium itself. And part of the reason for that, just a little side note here, amillennialism, which believes we're in the millennium now, that this is the kingdom of God on earth as it's going to be until the, until the, the final state, is super popular. It's, I mean, you, you line up 100 gospel, Bible-believing Christians and 90 of them are all millennial. And so it's important for us to not um, go down without a fight. Um, we want to make sure that we understand premillennialism. We want to make sure that we understand a proper view of eschatology um, because it's amazing how in history certain truths can begin to become so unpopular that it becomes assumed to be wrong just because it's unpopular. And so uh, here we are waving our little dispensational flag, you know, yay, and, and we're trying to do our best to put this forward because it is important. So we'll just do some introductory things here to begin with on views of eschatology. Um, the word eschatology itself, eschatos, it just comes from the word, the Greek word for last. It's the study of last things. And I think it's a great word to learn. It's a great word to, um, to just have in your vocabulary because eschatology is very important to us and it reminds us to look forward. 
And of course, the, the major issue that most people want to focus on with eschatology is the issue of timing. What happens when? And that's where we get into a lot of fun debates and arguments. Um, I would not say that eschatology is a salvation issue, but I will say this, that there are certain views of eschatology that border on heretical, and if you're willing to believe that, then I have more doubts as to whether you're actually going to believe the biblical gospel, because your method of interpreting scripture is so off that I'm not confident in how you would interpret the more pertinent passages concerning salvation. So let's do the four views, the, the kind of the four major views. There's lots of little sub-views, but four the major views on the timing of biblical prophecy. When does the the big stuff happen? The first view is called preterism. It's based on the Latin term preter, which just means past. Preterism is the view that many, if not all, of the eschatological passages in the Bible have already been fulfilled. And the big major event that everything pushed forward towards was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, to be very clear, in certain passages in the Gospels, Jesus did uh, predict the destruction of Jerusalem. He did predict what happened in A.D. 70. But that doesn't mean that everything else is talking about that as well. This is... This belief is heavily based on passages in the New Testament that says that uh, eschatological events are soon or they're near. And so they would say, well, soon or near ought to be, uh, you know, in the next, in the coming decades. Now, the Apostle Paul also said that the coming of Christ was new, was near and was soon. And that was 2,000 years ago. So um, soon and near in God's economy is just... Um, it's it's near for him. It's not near for us, necessarily. Now, there are some variations within preterism. Um, there is mild preterism, or otherwise known as the cafeteria method, that you say some things have to do with AD 70 and some are historic, have already happened, or, or some are, are yet to happen, rather. Um, there isn't a method for mild preterism. There isn't a way to say this is how you determine what happened and what didn't happen. And so it's pretty hard to be consistent. Then there's partial or moderate preterism. That says that um, most things happened in AD 70, but some passages do teach a future bodily return of Jesus Christ. That's the view of R.C. Sproul um, when he was on the earth. Um, he is now a, a full uh, dispensationalist, but that's just um, my view. Uh, but R.C. well represented the view of partial preterism, and the reason is is because he wasn't a heretic. And he knew that if you are a preterist, that you're a heretic. That uh, you're denying the second coming of Christ, you're denying that anything is future, that, that everything is just going to suddenly happen um, at the end. Full preterism says that all Bible prophecy was fulfilled with the events surrounding A.D. 70. This includes the second coming of Christ, the resurrection, the eternal state, that we have right now been spiritually resurrected and will live forever with spiritual bodies when we die. And so it it becomes really convoluted that, that when you die, you're at the end of everything and all good things happen and that we are now in the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. I don't know how anybody comes to that. There's only one way. 
You start with a theological system, you back yourself into a corner, and then you have to defend yourself and you have to begin to interpret Scripture according to that system instead of saying, you know what, our system is broken. Let's just see what the Bible says. So there's preterism. There is also historicism. I see some of you bobbing your head. Would it help if I move back? I think I can do that. Is that am I going to mess up the sound system if I move back? See if we unplug anything. Is that better? There we go. Ironic, I'm getting in the way of the word. So There is preterism. Historicism uh, is... Historicism has been associated with dispensationalists a lot and we kind of deserve that at times. Historicism says that the prophesied events of the book of Revelation are being fulfilled in the present age. That they're happening now. The earthquakes and wars are current fulfillments of Bible prophecy. And, and back in the day, it was really popular on, on Christian TV stations and so forth to have um, the, the newscasting sort of set with the guy sitting at the desk and papers and notebooks and Bibles out and then the, uh, and the news articles up on the screen and then him reading from Scripture. This is You see this earthquake that happened in, in Manila? Well, we read in Revelation about this great earthquake and so we sort of got that reputation, but that, that's really, really difficult to prove. And I'll show you as we go some ways to think about that that I think will be helpful. That, that sort of view, the historic, historicism view, um, picks out people who are antichrist and it's always changing. Um, the Pope is always a big, uh, a, a big candidate for antichrist. I tend to agree with that at a certain level. Little A, not big A, antichrist. But um, back in the day, uh, the, the Russian leader Gorbachev was said to be antichrist because he had a big old unfortunate birthmark on his forehead. Oh, the mark of the beast. Antichrist doesn't get the mark of the beast. It's other people who do. Um, that was just sad. His mother kind of went, oh boy, that's terrible. But um, so, so there's always new antichrists. Um, I, I've heard recently, uh, it's actually fairly believable. Um, our president has been antichrist and that one's a little harder to refute. But uh, we won't go with that. Um, Historicism became super popular from the 16th to the 19th century um, and, and even into the 20th century. And then there's idealism. Idealism doesn't doesn't stress a past, present, or future fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It kind of removes the timing issue a little bit. Instead, Bible prophecy teaches timeless truths about Christianity and about the world. That Christians should endure amidst difficulties. That's true. That there's a continual battle between good and evil. That's true. Jesus will prevail. That is true. However, that kind of puts you into the category of uh, what they call pan-millennialists, that it's all going to pan out in the end, and you're not worried about timing. Well, the thing is, is that Scripture does speak to timing, and so if Scripture speaks to it, then it should be important to us as well. And then the, the camp we would fall into is futurism. This view holds that major passages of Bible prophecy await a future fulfillment, um, primarily during what uh, the book of Daniel calls the 70th week of Daniel. That is a a future tribulation period, a future coming of Jesus Christ, a future millennial kingdom, a future binding of Satan, and so forth. Everything described in Revelation 20. 
So I want to go back to preterism and just give, a, because preterism is very prevalent today. And so I want to give a little bit of a critique of preterism. Just a few little points here. Um, first of all, the implications of preterism to the book of Revelation. Um, this is kind of what they would believe. The Great Tribulation speaks of the fall of Israel. That they would say that, that Israel, that's the ultimate fall of Israel um, and that it's already happened. The great apostasy, that that happened in the first century. The great apostasy is, is spoken of in Revelation 17 and 18 um, of uh, what the Bible calls uh, the great Babylon. The, the apostasy of the whole world, that happened all the way in the first century. The last days, they would call the last days the period between Christ's coming and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. That we're already 2,000 years past the last days, which I don't know how the math works on that exactly. The Antichrist they would say was the widespread apostasy in the Christian church prior to the fall of Jerusalem. The beast was a symbol of Nero in particular and the Roman Empire in general. Um, Now, little problem with that, Nero was not emperor when Jerusalem fell in AD 70. He was already dead. Um, So, a little problem there. There There was a new emperor. The false prophet is the leadership of apostate Israel. And the great harlot spoken of in Revelation, that that's Jerusalem. Uh, And that kind of tells you what they think of Israel in the future, right? The great harlot now is called Jerusalem. The millennium is the kingdom of Christ in between his first and second comings. Now, preterists don't really say much about that. That's more the partial preterist view in that we're in the millennium now, uh, if they even admitted a millennium. Then you have the first resurrection of Revelation 20, verse 5. They would say that's a spiritual resurrection. That's our, our justification and resurrection in Christ. Problem is, the, the context doesn't say that. It's a bodily resurrection. And then Israel, in the book of Revelation, they would say national Israel has been rejected. True Israel today is the church. Now, I gave you, I think that's ten. Ten views of preterism. The problem with all of those is that there's nothing in the text to tell you this. It's simply a decision we've made that the Great Tribulation equals the fall of Israel. You can't just say that. That's like, that's like saying um, an orange equals apple pie. Okay, show me how an orange equals apple pie before you say something ridiculous. So there's, there's no hermeneutic basis for this. The only hermeneutic basis you really get, or, or the closest you come to it really, are, are theologians who have a lot of letters after their name saying these things are true. And it's written in pieces of cardboard with lots of paper in between called books that tell us, oh, it must be true because it's been published by HarperCollins or it's been published by uh, word publishers or whoever. That it must be true. Remember, publishing companies are there to make money, not to promulgate truth necessarily. Um, Zondervan puts out some of the best Christian books ever and some of the worst ever um, because it's about making money. So there's no hermeneutical basis for this. So let me, let me give you just some of the problems with preterism. And it's not because I, I know you probably didn't wake up this morning just bothered about preterism. Just saying, Lord, my walk with you is just being so badly um, maligned because of preterism. But what this does is it tells us how careful we ought to be in interpreting scripture and being being as as precise as we can. So here's some problems with the preterist view. First of all, it's founded on a really, really flimsy foundation because the preterist view only works 
if the book of Revelation is written between about 64 and 67 AD. Because it's supposedly prophesying about a future uh, event, which they take as the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know happened in AD 70. And so they have to say it was written before then. If Revelation was written after AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, preterism is kaput. It's false. According to preterism, Revelation is predicting this coming destruction. And so preterists are claiming that Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, But not only that, for the order of preterism to be correct, Revelation had to be written precisely between... A.D. 64, that was the beginning of of Nero's persecution, and spring of 67. This is because the book of Revelation allegedly predicts the death of Nero, which happened in 68, and the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70. That's pretty precise. Most Bible books, we don't date within a year or two. Those are, there are a few we can, but there's really good reasons for it. The overwhelming consensus of church history is that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John around the year 95. And so that, that in and of itself blows preterism out of the water. I, I mean, to me, it's like walking on, on thin ice. It's like trying to uh, skate across ice that you can see through. Um, I'm just not willing to stand on that. The preterist fulfillment claims don't hold any water. I'll just give you a few examples here. If Jesus returned in the armies of the Roman Empire against Jerusalem in AD 70, which is what preterists say, this is an event which the Bible says, Jesus said, every eye will behold him. If that happened, why is it that no one in the church for 1800 years of church history knew about this until somebody came up with the preterist view? The early church fathers, not one of them, viewed A.D. 70 as being the return of Christ. Not one. And this is very important. The, the generation after the, after the apostles wrote lots and lots of letters. They wrote letters to each other. They wrote theological treatises. They, wrote, um, they repeated scripture. Let me tell you how many letters uh, that the, the, the early church fathers wrote. They wrote so many letters that one of the ways we know precisely what books of the New Testament are to be books of the New Testament is that the early church fathers in the first generation after the apostles repeated every verse of the New Testament except for 11 of them. And that's how we know, that's one of the ways we know we're very confirmed and very confident in our New Testament. And out of all those letters, how many of the church fathers said Christ returned in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed? Zero. None of them. I don't have any confidence in the belief that came up 1,800 years after the fact. Matthew 24, 21 indicates that the Great Tribulation would be the worst period in history. And so they would say um, that the destruction of Jerusalem, a, a million Jews were killed. That's awful. That's terrible. Has that been the worst period in history for the Jews? It has not. Um, we would probably say, at least at this point, the Holocaust has been the worst period. Six times worse. Another problem, how can Nero be the Antichrist when he was never in Jerusalem, he never desecrated the temple, nor was he slain by Christ as is promised in 2 Thessalonians 2.8? None of those things happened to Nero. And so now you get into the realm of, well, it's symbolic. Again, that's just a, that's a, a wimpy way out of saying the scripture doesn't match up with my belief. 
We would also ask the question, how can Zechariah 12.3 be fulfilled in AD 70? This is the passage that says that all the nations of the world will come against Jerusalem. All the nations of the world did not come against Jerusalem. Um, Rome came against Jerusalem because they were sick and tired of terrorists making life miserable for everybody. And so they were sick of murders happening in the streets. They were sick of the continual rebellion. And so Rome came and said, that's it, you're done. And it was Rome and Rome alone. Zechariah 13.8 says that at this time, the time of the end, one-third of all Jews would receive Christ as Savior. Did that happen during that time? There's no evidence of that whatsoever. If Christ returned in A.D. 70, why, why aren't Christians in the Father's house? Because that's what Jesus said would happen in John 14. Why aren't we there? How about the 21 judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments? Um, now, I tend to think they're also thunder judgments. That's another topic for another day. Why weren't those fulfilled um, in some way before A.D. 70? And, and 100-pound hailstones and a third of the water being turned bitter? Uh, we haven't seen any of that happen. Zechariah 14, 1-4 says the Mount of Olives will split in two physically at Christ's return. It's still whole. It's in one piece. So it, it's I, I, almost a child could poke holes in this. Now, again, well, I didn't wake up this morning worrying about preterism, and now I am worried about it. I, I wasn't before. <laughs> what, are the, what are the implications, though? There's some dangerous implications to this sort of way of thinking about Scripture, not just preterism, but this way. Some forms of preterism deny a great doctrine of the faith, the second coming of Christ. I mean, we, we hang our hat on that. That's our, that's our great hope. When you have a bad day, that's the best thing to think about, isn't it? Oh, that was the last prayer of the Bible. Come soon, Lord Jesus. It also, at the very least, it severely shrinks the doctrine of the second coming. It makes it less significant. Jesus didn't make it less significant. There are many commands of Scripture regarding holiness and godliness related to the second coming that you encourage one another because of these words. We exhort one another. The Apostle Paul, um, I, I think we could show from 1 Thessalonians 4 that he thought the coming of Christ would happen in his lifetime. And so he pushed hard. He sacrificed. He thought at any moment he would have relief. And that's how we ought to be. Obviously, their view of Israel is flawed. There's no future for national Israel. So, preterism essentially becomes anti-Semitic. And history has shown that very, very clearly. In fact, more and more today, it's sad to me. I mean, you would say, well, anti-Semitism, that's kind of like, you know, that's kind of like an old belief that nobody believes in anymore. There are more and more theologians writing against the idea of ethnic Jews having the right to their own land. More of them, not less. So, there is preterism. Now, I'm going to switch over here. And again, we're just kind of introducing uh, the, the broad view of eschatology. And I want to talk about post-millennialism. It used to be something you did a little bit more theoretical. Post-millennialism is making a comeback. I guess anything except just believing what the Bible says. Let me give you the basics of post-millennialism. The millennium is fulfilled... 
spiritually now in between the, the two uh, coming, the coming of Christ as Christ's kingdom starts small and eventually um, is going to permeate all areas of society that we are currently Christianizing the world that Satan is now bound and restrained in his ability to deceive the nations and he's still active now the reason that they have to make split hairs here is that he's not able to deceive the nations but he's still active why is that because anybody with any common sense can look around and see that Satan's still active, and I'll show you scripture as well. So basically what post-millennialism says is that the world will get better and better until Christ returns. I, I don't know if they don't read the news or... or um, why would you ever believe that? Now, they would say, well, we're just in a dip now. Well, we've been in a dip for a long time. Now... There's one thing I will have to say um, about post-millennialism is that it has produced a big um, push for gospel proclamation, a big push for uh, uh, preaching the gospel. But the problem is, is that never stays the main thing. We try to. We always try to maintain that no election, no politician is ever going to save our country or planet Earth. Only the gospel will. Only changed hearts will. So once they say, "Well, we need to proclaim the gospel," it goes very quickly into politics and into social justice, um, very quickly. Um, that Jesus will triumphantly return and and then end the millennium, and then the eternal state will be ushered in. So. I would say that the danger in this is the fact that you begin to get off base on the gospel. Um, a lot of a, a lot of professing believers today that are big now into social justice are post-millennial because they believe this. That it's our job to, we need better schools, we need better governments, we need better um, everything. And, and we're for all of that. I, I don't know any Christian that goes and votes against good stuff and just because they think that we shouldn't worry about it. But when they make that the emphasis, now the gospel gets pushed aside. And by the way, uh, post-millennials tend to think that we pre-millennials, uh, pre-millennialists are, are very pessimistic, that we hate the world, and we're just waiting and hoping for God to burn it up. I am hoping for God to burn it up. I just don't want to be in it when it happens. So, I, look, pre-millennialists, we're the happiest people on planet Earth. Because we can be happy knowing that great stuff is coming and we can be content now. Post-millennials, every time an election happens, oh, okay, not this time, you know. We don't worry about it. We'll just laugh. When, when uh, liberals steal the election in a couple weeks, um, we're just going to go, what did you expect? Prophesizing. I, yes, I'm not prophesying, just, to, just, just officially here. So post-millennialism has some problems. Here's some of them. It can be very ecumenical. Look, we just got to all pull together here. We, we've got to get, uh, in, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the uh, uh, Protestants and Catholics together movement was huge. And it's basically based on the idea that let's believe the Catholic Church, which teaches that we're bringing the millennium in, or that we're bringing the, the kingdom of Christ, and we just need to all band together, because only by banding together will we change all these social issues. And, 
and I understand that to a certain degree as a citizen, I am happy to vote and push for the same sort of uh, uh, policies as a as a Catholic or anybody who believes in certain eth- ethic um, ethical standards. That's fine, but you begin to push aside the gospel. You begin to push aside truth in favor of a few commonalities. You also have the mission of the church becoming much more social and political under this view. How successful has that been? Ask any non-churchgoer, ask any non-Christian, what do you think churches are supposed to do? What, what are they going to say? They're almost always going to say, well, they're, you know, they're here to help society. They're here to, to help orphans and to feed the hungry. And The world views us as a social institution. Um, a social justice institution. That's how Hollywood portrays it. The best pastors in the world are always the ones that are protesting this or that and not actually preaching but out doing things. It's crazy. Ironically, the belief system of post-millennialism nearly died right after World War II. World War I, rather. Why? Because World War I was the greatest cataclysm of human death that, that we had seen in our history. And so that kind of rocked that world, but it is making a comeback now. So basically, it's unsupportable from Scripture. It's, it's wishful thinking theology. It is theology that says we're going to have our best world now, I guess is what the book, if they were going to write it, um, would be. So postmillennialism is it, it is fraught with difficulties. I want to look for a bit at amillennialism because for every postmillennialist, uh, there are fifty amillennials. So this this is the one that's really more of a concern. It is all the rage. It's spreading like wildfire. In fact, it's it's to the point now that amillennialism as a whole, uh, when you talk about various uh, theological conferences, even uh, seminaries, they tend to look down on premillennialists as, well, you guys, you're, you're, you're sort of old school and we respect your history, but we're moving on to, to real truth now. There is a, there is a looking down on, on us by, um, in great, great many ways. What is amillennialism? Well, basically... It's a theological view about the thousand-year reign of Christ that's mentioned in Revelation 21 through 6. In particular, amillennialism is the perspective that there is not a future literal thousand reign of Christ upon the earth, thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth. It's not going to happen. That it, that it's and there's lots of varieties to it. That maybe it's sort of happening now. That's kind of the, a mixture of postmillennialism and amillennialism. Um, but basically. If you draw a chart of all end times events for all millennialists, it's very simple. It's a line that shows stuff that's happening now and then everything else all pops in at the same time. Scripture tends to be a little bit more precise than that. And so they would also hold that the only place in all of the Bible that speaks of a thousand year reign of Christ is Revelation 20. And so they say, well, that's that's just um, that is uh, just metaphorical and it, it may have already happened and so forth. Here are some of their key beliefs. 
the millennium, which they would say is mentioned only in Revelation 20, is being fulfilled spiritually in the present age before the return of Christ. So in other words, they, they would say they believe in the kingdom of Christ. They just say it's happening now. That we're in the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom will be consummated when Christ returns to set up the eternal state. Revelation 21 and 22. They would also say that Satan is presently bound and that Christians are now enjoying the benefits of the millennium. I, it's even hard to say that with a straight face, to be honest with you. Um, so, I, I don't know what world they're living in, but this doesn't, at least, at least subjectively, doesn't feel like the millennium to me. Um, one of the things we would say in their favor, though, is that they have a very high view of the kingship of Jesus Christ, and I appreciate that, and we love that. They have a high view of, of uh, Psalm 2, where God says that he has set his king in Zion. And so... We appreciate that, but we have a very high view of Christ as well. Just the fact we also view that he's not here yet. They would also say that the thousand-year period mentioned in Revelation 20 refers to a long, indefinite period of time between the two comings of Christ, and it's not a literal thousand-year period. Why can't it be a literal thousand-year period from their standpoint? Because we've already had two of them, right? It's gone by twice. So you can't say it's a literal thousand years. If you did, in the year 999, all millennialists would be getting really nervous because like, Christ needs to return now or we're wrong. How do they view the end times? This is kind of their, their, their scenario. It's very simple. Christ is ruling now in his kingdom. Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Tribulation is experienced in this present age, even though Christ is ruling. I, I, I added that part. Even though Christ is ruling, we still experience tribulation. Jesus will return again to the earth. After Jesus returns, there's a general bodily resurrection of all righteous people, a general judgment of all unbelievers, and the eternal kingdom will begin. So again, it's just, here's the line of history, everything's happening now, and then, boop, it all happens at the end. So, that's why there aren't thick books on amillennialism, because there isn't a lot to it. How about amillennialism in history? History doesn't prove anything, but it does at least illumine us as to what actually happened. The first 300 years of church history was not amillennial. It was pre, predominantly premillennial. That was the view of the church. The early church began to evidence hints of what would later become amillennialism, and we owe most of that to Augustine. Now, we don't want to denigrate him. He was a great theologian. He, he contributed much to our faith, but he is referred to as the father of amillennialism. And Augustine's amillennialism quickly became the accepted view of the church. In fact, it was so accepted that in 431, the Council of Ephesus said that if you're premillennial, we condemn you as being superstitious. I'm not sure where they got that exactly, but they, they viewed it as a superstitious view. Amillennialism became then the prevailing doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, and it is today as well. Now, why, why would it be a big deal to the Roman Catholic Church? They view themselves as the representative of the kingdom of Christ on earth. And so they are the kingdom of Christ on earth. And so uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning, actually. Amillennialism was later adopted by most of the Protestant reformers. And, and to be honest with you, amillennials today, they'll say, um, they'll say, well, almost all the reformers were amillennial. That's right. They're almost all paedo-baptists also, and we don't believe in that. Um, there were some leftovers from Catholicism, and that's very understandable. There were some Anabaptists that were premillennial. 
And why is that? Because the Anabaptists tend to look more toward Scripture a little bit, and they also saw a premillennial view. Now, uh, premillennialism has experienced a resurgence in the last 200 years, but we're still out, vastly outnumbered. And it's not a salvation issue, but it is a how you view the Bible issue, which becomes um, pretty important. Again, it's the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. It's also held by many Lutherans and those in the Reformed tradition. So, when I, when I get to go to conferences where there's a lot of amillennial uh, speakers and um, they know there's a few of us premillennials there, almost always they're very gracious and you just sort of, they sort of avoid the topic of the second coming, avoid the topic of the great tribulation and all of that. And, and I will commend this. Um, amillennialism, I, I would have to say those in that camp lead the way as far as what it means to walk with Christ today. Um, the, the Puritans were amillennial, and they are the champions in all of church history in how to walk with Christ. So because they believed that the kingdom of Christ is now, they wanted to live that way. They wanted to live as if the kingdom is now. And, and I think it is possible, they do have a point, it is possible to think, be so future-oriented that you just act like today doesn't matter. And that's not a, a biblical or balanced view. But what's their basic issue? Their basic issue is Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So that's, that's where their issue is, is with that particular passage, the beginning of the, the reign of Christ on earth. But I would say, we would go to great lengths to say, let's see if I can get untangled, there we go, that the amillennial approach to interpreting the book of Revelation is not only unacceptable, it's illogical. They subscribe to something called progressive parallelism. Progressive parallelism says that Revelation is not chronological, it's not sequential, but it's describing the church age from seven parallel perspectives all happening at the same time. What's the problem with that? Well, first of all, there are 66 books of the Bible. The other 65 are not interpreted that way. You have to come up with your whole new system just for that book. Um, and, and on top of that, try to get 10 millennials to agree on where those seven sections are divided. Um, you can't get them to agree on it. And, I, you know, one of my professors in seminary said something just off the cuff that I, I have never forgotten. I've repeated this. I will repeat it to my dying day that the Bible is safest in the laps of ordinary church members. Because ordinary church members, you're too busy trying to live your life for Christ to sit around figuring out how to change the Bible's meaning. You just want to believe what it says and live, live what it says. I think if you give any Christian the book of Revelation and say, read this for the very first time, and they've never read it before, I, don't, I, I think zero of them would ever say, I see seven sections of church history here. I see seven overlapping progressive parallels. They're not going to come up with that. When something is so lofty that a theologian has to explain it to you, and even then you don't understand it, you just take their word for it, that's, that's troubling. 
I agree with the fact that Bible teachers ought to be explaining the Bible to you. I, I have staked my, my reputation and my paycheck on this fact. But the idea is not to explain something to you so that you go, wow, that's so lofty. I'm glad Steve understands that because I still don't get it. It's for you to have light bulbs going off. Oh, there it is in the text. That's what the Bible teacher is to do. So that approach is, is very troublesome. And then the amillennial approach also is in conflict with the New Testament's description of Satan's present activities. They split hairs and they will say, well, well, Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Well, what does that mean? Well, what they say is that, well, that the gospel is free to go into every nation. You know, if you ask Wycliffe Bible translators, they would say, no, absolutely not. They, they keep track of how many languages there are on earth and how many, uh, how many languages they've translated the Bible into and they're not even close to being done. And so I, I, I don't know where they get that idea that you can separate individuals and nations. All I know is what scripture says. Here's what Satan is doing now. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the gospel, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That doesn't sound like nations being freed to me. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Present tense. Acts 5, verse 3, after the initiation of the church, which supposedly began the millennium, or, or however they want to view it, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? 1 Thessalonians 2, 18, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In 1 John five nineteen, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Did you catch that? The whole world. That means nations. So, that is a classic case of having a theological system backing yourself into a corner and defending it at all costs. I, I think it's better to take 1 Timothy 4.15. It's one of my favorite verses as a pastor. It's my go-to verse when somebody says, well, uh, have you changed your view on this? Well, yeah, I have. Why? Because 1 Timothy 4.15 says, let your progress be made known to all that it's okay to grow in the Lord. It's okay to grow in, in your faith. And I have great respect for former amillennialists who have become premillennial because they're looking at Scripture and letting Scripture speak for itself because that's, that's what happens. So, I, I think I'm going to stop right there. and We have time for a, a few questions because I want to dig into actual premillennialism and not just rush through it next time. So, um, do you have any questions on what we've done so far?